0: And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, here's your host, Patricia Raskin.
1: Welcome, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show. We have a great program for you today. We're talking about how we can understand ourselves and create a better life for ourselves. My guest is John Fredrickson, and his book is The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth accept yourself, and create a better life. John Fredrickson is a psychotherapist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He's a former co-chair of the Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy Training Program at the Washington School of Psychiatry, where he's a faculty member, and he's the founder of of the Institute for Training and Research. His previous books have been co-creating change. Welcome, John.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, yeah, exciting. So let's talk about the title. The title is, is Power Pact, The Lies We Tell Ourselves. What do you mean?
2: Well, throughout life, uh, we all experience you know, the losses of life, whether it's illness, uh, death, a loss of a job, the end of a marriage. There, there are difficult things we face in life, and it's hard. And um, sometimes to deal with the, the pain of life, we tell ourselves lies uh, to avoid uh, the pain of life. And maybe we, you know, someone says, "How are you doing?" You say, "Oh, I'm doing fine." Uh, are you depressed? No, no, no. I'm just uh, just need to get some rest. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or we we tell ourselves lies like um, we might be in a relationship that's stuck, and we say, "Well, maybe one day it'll change." Mm-hmm. That we have um, there's the pain of life that's inevitable, but they're the lies we tell ourselves that can cause the unnecessary suffering.
1: Hmm. and th- I think the whole point of this is how you face the truth how do you get through that because doesn't it mean that if you then face that you're going to have to make a change in some way and people are afraid of that they don't want to change uh,
2: well, uh, we, well we, we want the change and we fear it is, is the right. thing I mean because uh, right. the thing is you know uh, it's, and I want to point out that we all lie to ourselves to some degree whenever we face the, uh, face the pain in our lives. It's not like uh, it's an, anything except quite normal and human. It's just that we, we suffer because of those lies we saw, swallowed or the lies we tell ourselves. So like you say, we, we need to face the truth we've been avoiding. Whether that truth is that um, we better start studying so that we can pass that exam or whether it's the truth of how we're relating to To our spouse, it may be that we're relating to our spouse in a way that's going to make our marriage not work. That there are truths we need to face, and as you say, when we face those truths, yes, that means something needs to change and that we have to deal with the anxiety of change.
1: Mm. So when you work with people, do you have a certain kind of therapy that you work with? Is there a, a step process to this or is it just whatever the person needs and you use different tools?
2: Um, The kind of therapy I do is called intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, and uh, it's really based on the idea that therapy, as we found through research, um, therapy works best if there's a really clear focus. So the first thing we ask a patient is, what's the problem you'd like me to help you with? So we want to know what that problem is they want to overcome. And then we start to explore to find out what's causing that problem. A lot of times when people come to therapy, they may think that other people are the source of their problem. Like it's not Mm -hmm. uncommon to ask someone, so what's the problem i me to help you with? They say, it's my wife or it's my husband. It's my boyfriend. Right? And uh, we... We oftentimes have to help them see that the problem is not someone else, but it's the way we're dealing with our feelings in a relationship. So when we find out what a person's problem is, they usually don't know what's causing their problem. They think other people are causing the problem. So we have to help them see what are the things they're doing and what are the things they're saying that are actually creating their problem. Because if we can help people see what they're doing that's causing the problem, then it becomes a lot clearer about how to resolve that problem.
1: So, John, give us an example. Give us a client A, for example, who comes in, tells the problem, and how you might start this process or how it might look.
2: Um, There's a great example in the book. Um, There's a woman who comes in, and she has an autistic son that's 40 years old. And... um, as it turns out, he got sick, so he had to come home to stay with her for a while uh, until he recovered from his illness, and then he had to go back to his group home. Well, while he was staying with her, they went to the doctor one day, and he didn't look, and uh, when he was crossing the street, was nearly hit by a bus. And she was yelling at him, you've got to be normal, you've got to change, you've got to look at both ways on the street, which is very understandable. She was terrified for him. But then she was saying, saying in the office, you know, he's got to change. He can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, hmm, so an autistic son that's 40 years old has to change. Is that true? And she says, yes, mm-hmm. he can't do, keep doing this. And I said, well, but your autistic son, who's been autistic for 40 years, um, I can appreciate how you wish your anger would un-autism him, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, does it? And she said, No. And I said, look, I can understand. Of course you wish you had a normal son, a healthy son. Um, But you've got an autistic son. I wonder, could we maybe hold the funeral for the normal son? You never had Mm and never will. Right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, she cries. And, you know, you think, ooh, that's, that's direct. That's very painful. But what's interesting is that, you know, when she could grieve, and feel that pain, and, and, mm. and mourn the loss, then she could start to relate to her real son, who was autistic, instead of trying to harass him to become a normal son he could never be. Mm. And she could also really accept herself as she was, without assigning herself the task of making him into something she couldn't make him into. Mm. So. So in a sense, by helping her face the truth and, and grieve the loss, um, she now could love her autistic son and their relationship could be based on the truth and they could accept the limits of life and, and have the love they could have and then she didn't have to nag him and he didn't have to feel like he was permanently inadequate for just, you know, being the way he yeah. was.
1: That's really, That's a great example. I would like to, I think we have enough time, uh, in this segment, I want to give you an example of that in my own life. And yep. it, it really rings true for me. It's <clears throat> it's about myself. So I am an entrepreneur and I'm a baby boomer. So I'm a little older becoming an entrepreneur and doing my dream.
3: All that's mm-hmm. well and
1: good. Except that. Yep. Except that. I grew up with a very different model. I grew up with, um, you know, trophy wife, well taken care of, and I look around me, and I look at other women my age who have that, right? and I mm-hmm. also look at other women my age that are traveling around the world. And I am mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm in process with this entrepreneurial. I'm doing well, but it's still, you know, you're in your own business and you have to think about it all the time. And there's that other part of me, John, that says, "Oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost through it, but not quite." That will say. Oh, come on. You you hear the voice. The voice goes, look at, you know, look at what what your mother had. What's wrong with you? You know, look at your friend over here. How come you didn't do, if only you'd stayed in this. And it goes on and the voice gets louder.
4: And Mm -hmm. so one
1: day, you know, I had to say, look, that's not, because that's the life I've had a little bit of. I mean, I've had more Mm -hmm. than a little bit of it. And I Mm -hmm. certainly could have it again immediately if I wanted it. This Mm -hmm. is what I'm supposed to do. Yes, I'm older. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's 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 not the norm at this time, but I'm mm-hmm. doing it. I'm doing it well. But it's getting rid of that. It's not getting rid of it because there is sadness that it's not a little easier for me that I don't have that partner. That's always right there. There is that sadness and it doesn't mean mm-hmm. I can't have it again. But there is that piece of that. I think what has honestly, I think I would have made it 20 years younger if I didn't have that voice on me Mm -hmm. with how come, how come. So it's me being able to say, no, this is who you are. You were meant to do this, and you do Mm -hmm. it well. But it's, uh, let me tell you, this is not easy.
2: Absolutely. You know, because when we hear that voice on our head, it it feels so compelling, precisely because it's from our head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? It seems so compelling. And yet I find oftentimes it's very helpful to reframe some of these statements, you know, for instance, I, I forget one of the statements you made was something like, um, I shouldn't be where I am, something like that, right? And, you know, and in and one way, we might come at that is say, well, is that true? Because in a way, you're saying you shouldn't be where you are, even though this is where you are. Mm-hmm. And then we can take it a step further. Uh-huh. So the reality of you shouldn't be what the reality of you is. Is that mm-hmm. true? Mm-hmm. You know, we begin, <laughs> you know, it's, it's in an interesting way. We're in that situation. It's almost as if the voice says, Patricia shouldn't be Patricia.
1: Yeah, it, it reminds me of who's, who is the woman who does the four questions.
2: Oh, yeah, Byron Katie. Mm-hmm. Yes, Byron Katie. You know, is and, that and
1: true? How do you know it's that,
2: true? Exactly. Her, and her technique is very useful for helping us look at what we call in mm-hmm. therapy, denial through fantasy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's how we are, and then there's a fantasy of how we wish we were. And as you say, some days it's kind of sad to discover, huh, I am not the same as this fantasy in my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, when we put it that way, we realize, well, actually, it's not so sad that I'm not the, f- the fantasy, same as the fantasy okay. in my mind because, yeah, that's a fantasy. Yes. Only one of these is real. But we can, in a way, torment ourselves at thinking we should be the same. As a as a fantasy. In a way, it's like, you know, fantasy can be fantastic as a way to imagine how your business would be or mm-hmm. looking at different ways you could advance yourself or a book you would write about women entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But right. oftentimes, we misuse our capacity uh, for fantasy uh, for the purpose of self-torture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also and so, think too, yeah, I think mm-hmm. too, John, it's, it's, I'm sure, and you do this in your work, is helping people rid themselves of those old patterns that have been ingrained since you've been a child.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and even, and you think, you would think by this time they'd be gone, but they're not.
2: Well, yeah, well, and, and I don't even think of those patterns. They are thoughts that come up, and oftentimes the first step is just recognizing, oh, I'm saying I should be ideal rather than right. real.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: You yep. know, yep. and good. we forget, we forget ideal is based on the word idea, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. right?
2: There's an idea, and then there's real. Yeah. And, and also we also know that ideals are great. They can be a framework of orientation. It's like you aim, it's like the North Star, right? If you're sailing, you want to know where the North Star is, so you know know where North is. And that way you can sail your boat. But no matter how far you sail your boat and what harbors you arrive at, you never arrive on the North Star. And we forget that. We realize that ideals are framework's orientation. We we never become the ideal because we're human. We're inherently flawed. But ideals can really always steer us in the right direction as long as we remember that we'll never be the same as the ideal. Exactly.
1: All right. We're going to take a break on that note. We're going to come back. We'll have a whole hour with John Fredrickson. And we're talking about the book, The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth, Accept Yourself, and create a better life. You're listening to The Patricia Raskin Show right here on, on VoiceAmerica.com. Stay tuned.
2: We'll be right back.
5: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset? Your home. Is it from a reality show on cable TV? A comparison website? Or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at patriciaraskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia
1: Raskin Show. Hi, everybody. We are back. And my guest is John Fredrickson. His book is The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth, accept yourself, and create a better life. And John Fredrickson is a psychotherapist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He's a former co-chair of the Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy Program at Washington School of Psychiatry. And he's the founder of that program as well. His previous book is, and its prize-winning is Co-Creating Change. Welcome back, John.
2: Thank you so
1: much. I have... um, I have a statement here that I think is very interesting, so I'd love Mm -hmm. you to talk about it. It's in your book. Talk about how what is wrong, right, in quotes, meaning what you think is wrong in you, often will point to what is right. You say to heal and recover who we are and create a more authentic life, you have to stop running and embrace what you fear from the wounds of your own past to your own anger. Which is which is a hard one. I mean, we've been talking about that. So, how do you how do you use that to to go to what's right?
2: You know, it's so interesting. I can think of a couple of examples. There was someone recently I met who um, suffered a tremendous amount of anxiety, and he said being anxious didn't make any sense. He couldn't figure out why he's chronically anxious, right. and nothing had really helped him. Right. And one of the themes I point out in the book is that anxiety always points to what you need to face. And for him, he just thought anxiety was something he needed medication for, or something to get away from. But then as I began to explore what was going on in his life, um, I discovered that he um, was having a number of sexual affairs with women uh, and yeah. that his wife didn't know about. And, you know, he aggressively acknowledged that if his wife found out about any of these affairs, um, she would quite readily uh, divorce him. So it became quite clear. He thought there was nothing that he should be anxious about, but the anxiety pointed to the fact that this guy was literally setting his life on fire. He, had a, he was very, very self-destructive. And his anxiety was saying, look, you better take a look at the self-destructiveness or you could destroy your whole life. Mm-hmm. Another, another case, I think, is a very touching one I talk about in the, in the book about a, a woman who, um, who had been a drug addict, drug addict and to support her habit uh, became a prostitute to support it, but she didn't want her daughters to see this. Mm-hmm. And so she, she asked uh, their, their father to take care of the girls. The father and mother were no longer together, but she asked him to take care of the girls so they, she, they wouldn't see her using drugs and wouldn't see her you know working as a prostitute then some weeks later, she learned that he had sexually abused one of the girls. And, of course, you know, she felt horrible, 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 right? And, um, and she got hold of the girls, got custody, and so on. But, of course, the damage was done, you know. And, um, and she, meanwhile, came, came to me. She said, something's wrong. I don't know what, uh, what right is, but something's wrong with me, you know, and just feeling so wrong. And uh, was suffering from tremendous guilt, and interestingly, uh, some of the previous therapists had tried to get her to forgive herself, tried to get her to let go of her guilt, tried to rationalize away why she shouldn't feel guilty. After all, it wasn't what she did. It's what the ex, ex-boyfriend ex had done and so on. And, uh, and, and what I had to help her see was this guilt that she thought was a problem was probably the healthiest part of her. Mm. I said, you know, yeah. this, this guilt... Is the healthiest part of you. This guilt is a sign of your love. If you didn't love your daughters, you wouldn't be feeling this guilt. And I said, I am not going to take away your guilt. And even if I could, I wouldn't because it's really the most beautiful part of you. You know? And I just kept continuing to say that what she thought was her problem was actually the most beautiful part of her. It was really mm. this stunning piece of humanity. You know, other people would see the prostitute, but they wouldn't see this incredible beauty in this woman that she felt tremendous guilt and a need, a, a need to atone for, for what mm. she'd done. And as I pointed out to her, she had, uh, in a sense, been using drugs as a way to punish herself afterwards for this. And as I said, you know, your punishment is not going to help your daughter. And if you went to drugs, your daughter would lose you a second time, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know, so it's very important to face this guilt as deeply as we can. You know, so that you can really come to terms, and 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 as a result, this woman, you know, was able to stay off drugs the rest of her life. Okay. She uh, later on got a full time job as as a caretaker mm-hmm. for children, and mm-hmm. uh, lived with her daughter and helped raise the granddaughter. Symbolically, you know, taking care of a little girl and yeah. undoing or, or atoning yeah, for I, what she done.
1: Yeah, and I want to say something about that. I would think that if this hadn't happened with what the husband did. Mm -hmm. It may not have forced her in a sense. That was like a catalyst for her to make a change, right, when you think about Mm -hmm. it. Because if if she had just kept doing what she was doing and, Mm -hmm. you know, he took the girls and nothing, there wasn't anything to force his change. But when he had this behavior, which she blamed herself for, which wasn't her behavior, correct, Mm
2: -hmm. It, it
1: made her think. It changed everything in a good way.
2: Well, with the right kind of help, I mean, because she could have kept going the wrong path, you know, in a way, it's not so much what he did, but when he did that, it's what was her choice at that point, right. you know, it's like, right. and she, you know, through the help of therapy was really able to, to face the truth and then really reclaim her life mm-hmm. mm. so that what she thought was wrong was actually something very, uh, very beautiful about her, you know? Mm.
1: And and do you think it was only then, John, when she saw the beauty in it, that she was able to give up the drugs or move in a different direction?
2: I think it was a couple of things. I think it was very powerful for her when I said, "You wouldn't feel this guilt if it weren't for the fact you love your daughters." Mm-hmm. Because she had been engaging in so much hate, thinking that she's so horrible and that she'd been a prostitute. And oftentimes, you know, people haven't. A very hard time seeing what's, uh, uh, seeing what's bad in them, you know, as we see today sometimes. This is a woman who had trouble seeing what was good. And when I could point out that she would not feel this guilt if it weren't for the fact she loved her daughter, that really touched her in a very deep way because it helped her see there was something good and beautiful in her worth saving. And I think another thing that was very important for her was when we dealt with her issue of self-punishment and how she deserved to suffer. When I could say to her, "Your daughter left you. you your daughter lost you once when you sent her to her father. But if you use drugs again, she'll lose you again, and she might lose you forever." Mm-hmm. And that I think really helped her see that she did not that she did not want to use drugs again because she did not want to abandon her daughter. Did not want her to suffer. And I think that was, I think those were two very very important moments for her. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, one of the chapters in your book is mm-hmm. called "Optimal Hopelessness." is <laughs> an
2: oxymoron. Is there an
1: optimal hopelessness? Optimal? Can you be optimally hopeless?
2: Go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, you know, um, I'm thinking of uh, I'm, I'm thinking of another story that's in the in the book that's related to this one. But you know, there, there's a guy that comes to my office and he says he thinks he uh, he has trouble letting you go of his girlfriend, and he thinks that he has a love addiction, and this woman had dumped him many months before, and all he could do is think about her, how to get back together with her, and so on and so forth, You know, trying to text her, email her, run into her at a coffee shop, and so on and so forth, saying, I know we're meant to be together, we've got to get back together. And he said he thought he had a love addiction, and the fact is, no, he didn't have a love addiction, he wasn't addicted to her, after all, she left him. He Mm. was addicted to his fantasy of how he wanted her to be. Uh, You know, he was hoping this girl that rejected him would now accept him, that a woman who would left him would come back, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that way, he was not addicted to love, and he wasn't addicted to her. He was addicted to his fantasy of how he wanted her to be. So in fact, he was addicted to denial. So what's interesting, he had his hope was that a rejecting girlfriend would turn into an accepting girlfriend. Mm -hmm. He was hoping that reality would turn back into his fantasy. You know, he's hoping that the real girlfriend would turn into his fantasy girlfriend. So, what he called hope was actually a form of denial. And so, a lot of times, we have to help people give up hope in fantasies, in denial. And that's what I refer to as optimal hopelessness. Because once I could help this guy, he he was saying, well, I'm I just feel like I have to be patient. And I said, Yes, you have to be very patient when you're waiting for reality to change into your fantasy. Mm-hmm. And as I kept helping him see that he was waiting for what was real to become unreal, mm-hmm. then he could give up hope in the fantasy, which I call optimal hopelessness. Because once you give up hope on something that's truly hopeless, that's optimal. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really hear that. Or, or what you do in your mind is you have someone in your life and you want them to be a certain way. So you get a little dose of that. And then that's your fantasy. Oh, that. And so, yeah, I mean, I've seen that happen. Oh, well, that's, that's the only thing that they can see is that is that sliver, even though they yep. know who you are. And yep. it, it's like grabbing on to that. Oh, when I get a little piece of that, or maybe you behave that way a little bit. Oh, maybe that's it. But it isn't because it's, an it. so that's an interesting.
2: It is, it is interesting, isn't it? It's just in that sense, I think, you know, when true hope is when you hope for something that can happen, it may take a, yeah. a long time, it may yeah. take a lot of work, yeah. but there's something in reality that you're reaching toward. And mm-hmm. what I talk about optimal hopelessness is that sometimes we have hopeless hopes. In other words, we're hoping in something where there's denial, in the book, I, I give an example there, of a of a woman whose husband has been unemployed for something like ten or fifteen years, and she's saying that. You know, that he's got to get a job, she needs to talk to him about the money again, um, even though she's talked about it to him like hundreds of times, right? So she's relating to a fantasy husband who wants to work, but she's actually married to a husband that's indicated in all kinds of ways that he doesn't want to work, doesn't want to help out with the house in every which way. So in a way, I was having to help her see, yes, you're wanting a husband who doesn't want to work to want to work. Mm-hmm. that must Definitely. be very difficult.
1: Yeah. Yep. All right, listen, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk more about um, this kind of interesting optimal hopelessness and also how we, how we sometimes spin our own tales um, of something we see a glimmer of and we think that that glimmer is going to be something, but it really isn't. And so that would be a great thing to talk to you about, John, as well. My guest is John Fredrickson. The Lies We Tell Ourselves is his book, How to face the truth, accept yourself, and create a better life. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Show right here on Voice America. America's Voice will be right back.
5: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
4: You count. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company.
0: You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show.
1: Hi, everyone. We are back. My guest for the whole hour is John Fredrickson. His book is The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth, Accept Yourself, and create a better life. John Fredrickson is a psychotherapist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He's a former co-chair of the Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy Training Program at the Washington School of Psychiatry, where he is a faculty member and also the founder of this program. And he's written a book called Co-Creating Change, and uh, he's with us for the whole hour today. Welcome back, John. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I want to. Uh, I want to bring up the last part that we were talking about before the break, and that was the whole idea. And I've done this, so and I think it's. It's. I think it can be common. You're in a relate. For example, I'll I'll do it in always. Let's say you're you're in a relationship or you're at work, and there's something right. you really want, right? And you'll right. like, you'll get a little bit of it. Like the boss is very cold, and then one day, boom, great to you, and you hang on that like oh, this is so! Oh, it could be, he's got it in him, it could be, and it isn't. It's maybe once in a great while, it's throwing you a bone, and you take that and it becomes almost a fantasy and you hang on to that. Talk about that.
2: You know, that's a great example. It goes back actually to a behavior theory. They have found, you know, you've heard about the idea that you reinforce behavior, you know, so you do things that reinforce other people's behavior. Right. You know, the, the most powerful reinforcer, is intermittent reinforcement. You know, and that's exactly what you're talking about. We can really get so stuck if we get that intermittent reinforcement. But here's something that can really help clear things up for us. You know, it's sort of like we say, well, there was a glimmer I saw, right? Whereas if Mm -hmm. we saw, there's a difference. We have two wine glasses. One of them has a glimmer of wine, and one of them is actually a full wine glass. Mm -hmm. We forget the glimmer. Of wine in the bottom of the glass is not the same thing as a full wine glass. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think, oh, if there's a glimmer, there must be a full wine glass around here. Mm -hmm. In fact, no, it's just. That's very good. That's a very good analogy. You know, and here's another thing, um, another example from my book. There um, there was a fellow who came for therapy, and, he, he was, and I, I mostly do consultation these days. So I work with, I meet with people where they haven't succeeded in therapy to find out what's going on. Well, this guy came in. He said he thought therapy was BS. He thought his therapist was BS. And after about 10 minutes, he had a brilliant insight. He realized, I must be BS, too. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so anyway... We get going, and, uh, and then he happens to confide that he's pretty much 99% given up on life, on, on therapy, and so on. Meanwhile, he's expecting that therapy should somehow um, do something for him. And he's gone to therapy for 30 years. Now, he thought that just simply being in therapy,
4: mm-hmm. going
2: to therapy, simply being in a relationship would be enough but as I had to point out to him, I said, well, you know, if you've 99% given up, you know, obviously I have to accept that. You know, I can give 100%, but then if you give 1%, you're just going to have a, non, uh, a 1% result, and then therapy, this therapy, like the other therapies, would just be another 1% therapy, and you just have a BS result. Now, what happens is we have to remember if, if you give 100% to a relationship and someone else is giving 10%, that glimmer, you're going to have a 10% relationship. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the mistake we make is this. When we give 100% and the other person gives 10%, we often think, well, if I just tried harder, I could uh-huh. give the 90% that uh-huh. this other person is withholding. Mm-hmm. But you can only give your hundred percent, and the other per- you can't give the ninety percent that the other person withholds. Mm. Only the other person can give that ninety percent. So right. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is imagining if, the- if there's ten percent that mm-hmm. they could give a hundred, they could. That doesn't necessarily mean they will. And so we end up waiting for the other 90% rather than face, no, this is a person who gives 10% um, to relationships. And then he may be fortunate to find someone who tries to give that other 90% he's not giving and puts up with this 10%, but it's going to be a 10 percenter,
5: hmm.
1: Right. Or facing that this person is going to give that intermittent reinforcement because that's what that's, a, that's their pattern. Yep. That's what they do. Some days yep. yes, some days no. And you have. Right. It's very disconcerting, but once you catch on to that, and the problem is, it it, it doesn't help you trust that person because you don't know what you're going to get, John. It might be yes, no. it might be no.
2: Well, actually, no. You know exactly what you're going to get. Inconsistency.
1: Mm hmm. Right.
0: See, right. when you say,
2: I don't know what I'm going to get, that's how we deny, I know what I'm going to get, and I almost never get what I want. Mm. 10% of the time I get what I want, the other 90% I don't. So oftentimes we say, I don't know what I'm going to get because it's so painful to face, I'm just getting 10%. And I, and I get it very inconsistently. And I usually don't get it when I want it. The problem is is when we say well I see this you know I see that glamour that 10% the problem is we relate to the 90% we wish we saw yeah yeah rather than the 10% we're actually getting see and that's mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we get into trouble relating to the fantasy spouse we would like to see rather mm-hmm. than the real person who's there
1: and I think that's where the saying "you're getting crumbs" comes from. I've heard that. You know, you're getting Absolutely. crumbs. Absolutely. And you're listening, yeah. and you're saying, "I'm getting crumbs, really?" And but now I understand it, and I understand it very clearly from the way you're explaining it. Because if you're getting ten percent, you're getting crumbs.
2: Exactly. We say, "Well," if, and we oftentimes make a mistake. Well, since there's crumbs, there must be a bread loaf around exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> 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 well, and, for there, some and there reason. could
1: be, but there could be, though, John, but that person would have to change on their own.
2: Right? Well, well, we would have to point out, I notice you're giving 10%, and that's why we have a 10% relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not working for me anymore. I don't know why you're withholding from me. I don't know why you withhold from others. But I'm just aware that I can give my 100%, but as long as you give this 10%, we're going to keep having this 10% relationship. what what do you suggest we do about that? then the person realizes wow, he or she is is going to need to change the way they engage in this withholding behavior. and and if they don't, then they would they would have to withhold from someone else instead of from you. Do you and of course, you might own? Go ahead. Well, Well of course, of course you might choose to stay with the person, but then at that point you have to face, okay, I'm choosing to withhold from myself.
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? If you do decide to stay and the person mm-hmm. is open to change, do you think you can do it on your own, or do you think you do need a therapist? you do need somebody there? What do you think? <sighs>
2: You know, I think most change in this world is happening very, very well without therapists.
1: Hmm. (laughs) But it may not be the change you want, though. It may not be the change you want, correct?
2: No, I've seen people change in very beautiful ways without the help of therapists. I mean, I think therapy helps a lot. Obviously, I am one. But honestly, there's 7 billion people in the world, and and, and many of them are changing, and they're not necessarily with a therapist. A therapist can help a lot, and it's pretty clear to me, there's some patients, people, who don't change unless they have a therapist helping them. But there's mm-hmm. no question that people do change every day um, without the help of therapists. therapist. And the one thing I'm always saying to people who come kind of to my office you have to remember, you and I have a 50-minute conversation, and then there's six other days of the week. I mean, exactly. change is happening, you know, in part, you know, if, even if you're in therapy, it's because you've learned something in that 50 minutes. But the rest of the week, that change is happening because of something you're doing. Mm-hmm.
1: So, but I think if people, you know, don't have therapists, then they -hmm. do need to have a plan, right? I mean, it's not just going to happen. You have to sit down and come up with some kind of a structure. Would you agree with that?
2: I think you have to agree that you're going to try to face the truth of your relationship together. And when it comes to couples, that's extremely hard. Some couples do most most don't and so in that case it really helps to have another person a minister a friend or a therapist mm-hmm. who's going to help you on a regular basis face what we usually avoid because we get into trouble in relationships because of what we avoid and you know what facing what's uncomfortable makes us anxious that's why avoid and as couples we tend to avoid together um mm-hmm. so often we need a therapist just because we have that commitment that once a week together, even though we've been voiding the other six days, this one hour, we're going to try to face what makes us both really uncomfortable okay. because we would both like a much better marriage.
1: Right. Good. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are talking to John Fredrickson. He's the author of The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth, Accept Yourself, and Create a Better Life. John is a psychotherapist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He's a former co-chair of the Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy Training Program at the Washington School of Psychiatry, where he's a faculty member and where he founded that program. How can people get your book? What is, uh, what's the website?
2: Um, you, can, uh, get, you can order it at your favorite bookstore. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble.
1: Is there, is there a website as well
2: for your work? Uh, oh, for my work, um, there, I have a website it's called istdpinstitute.com. dot com. But for ordering the book, really order from your favorite bookstore. It's it, they can any bookstore can order it. Okay, all
1: right, folks. So we'll be right back with John Fredrickson talking about the lies we tell ourselves and how we can face the truth and have a better life. Right here on voiceamerica.com. dot com. I'm Patricia Raskin. We'll be right back.
4: Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clements. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed. Tune in Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossard, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: Become our
4: friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Patricia Raskin. My guest for the whole hour today is John Fredrickson. His book is The Lies We Tell Ourselves, How to Face the Truth, Accept Yourself, and Create a Better Life. John Fredrickson is a psychotherapist in private practice in Washington, D.C., and he's a former co-chair of the Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy Training Program at the Washington School of Psychiatry, where he's a faculty member and where he founded that program. And his previous book is Co-Creating Change. Welcome back. Welcome back, John. All right, so let's talk about, there's some fun concepts in your book here, like we talked about before, the optimal hope the optimal hopelessness what is psychotherapy
2: <laughs> a, well psychotherapy uh, is a term that I got from a friend of mine who used to be head of research at NIH he, um, he coined the term because a lot of times in therapy therapists make the mistake of empathizing with destructive behavior okay mm. um, for instance the other night I was uh, at, a, at a book reading and, um, and signing and a fellow came up to me and he said um, he said, "You know, I'm, you know, hearing about your book makes me think maybe I ought to change therapists." He says, "You know, I'm, i been in therapy for a while." He said, "I haven't changed, but I like my therapist. She's really nice, but I have to say, honestly, it's sort of like babysitting." And um, and I, and I realized, you know, in listening to that it's a comment, I've heard a lot of times is that. The, the patient feels sort of coddled um, and someone is, you know, as you would say, sort of babysitting. But good therapy is really helping us face what we usually avoid. So it's always going to be a little bit uncomfortable because the therapist is helping you kind of look at what you usually avoid. That's not always going to be comfortable. So, you know, the classic sense of, of psychotherapy is some guy who uh, comes to his therapy, he talks about how he's talking to his wife on the phone, he calls her names, he's rude to her, he's insulting when she's trying to discuss something with him, and finally he calls her such names that she finally hangs up, and he's just enraged and calls her names, calls her a bitch and so on in the therapy session, and it's just an outrage of the, with, with his wife, and the therapist says, oh, how hard that must have been for you. That's what we call psychotherapy. That the it's or what a colleague of mine used to call pseudo empathy, because our job is not to empathize with a patient's destructive behavior or to empathize with lies. We need to empathize with the person underneath the lies. So, in a case like that, what would you, you know, have ther- yeah, What
1: would you have said?
2: Well, what I would have said is, well, can we take a a look at that? Because you called your wife this name, this name, and this name, right? And he said, yes, and she hung up. And I said, well, you think that she rejected you, right? But in a sense, by your calling her names, right, you were pointing out that you didn't want to listen to her, when you call her names like this, right? In a sense, you create the wife that hangs up the phone. Can we yeah. take a look at this? Could we agree that this might, this kind of behavior could potentially sabotage your marriage? Now, in response, maybe he gets angry with me. You know, maybe he says, "You've, uh, I didn't come here to hear that. You shouldn't be saying things like that." And then I might have to say, "Hey, look." I can, I can lie to you if you want. You know, I could give you those lies. But then you could go to anyone to have someone lie to you. Mm-hmm. Or together, you and I you know, could face the truth together. I'm, I'm not critiquing you. I'm just saying I have a hunch these behaviors could be setting you up for failure. Could we take a look at that? So in a sense it takes courage for us to face what makes us uncomfortable but the therapist has to have enough courage to also say things that are a little uncomfortable otherwise you know it you know it's if you have if you have some really if you have some burnt food and you put it on the table and you pour a bunch of maple syrup on it it's It's still burnt food. It's no good. And the same thing is true. Someone brings something destructive into the room and and we cover it with this pseudo-empathy. Yeah, it doesn't help the person.
1: All right. We've got a few minutes left. So there's just a couple more I want to do. Um, One, I want to talk about gaslighting. And then I want to talk about, I like this, what can I do when I can do nothing? And I've been Mm -hmm. in that situation. I've said to people, what can I do? And they say nothing. And you feel Uh helpless, but sometimes you have to do nothing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So that one, we can talk about that one, and then we'll close with the gaslighting, which is very interesting.
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the problem is, is, is uh, what can I do when I can do nothing, right? And that we all know what that's like. Maybe it's a friend of ours who's really sick. All we can do is just sit with him. Or a friend of ours who's dying, right? All we can do is sit there. We can't stop them dying, but we can give them company. We can be with him. We can still love him. Or in the case, so one of the cases I had in there was a, a woman whose son was very self-destructive, you know? And... Um, and she had the sense that she had to stop him from being so self-destructive because she felt guilty about what had happened in his childhood, right? And, and in the end, and then I remember at one point uh, we were, she would keep sending him money, hoping that if she gave, sent him enough money that he wouldn't be so destructive. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and she said, he's, he's got to change. And I said, this man who has not changed in 30 years, why would he change? She says, mm-hmm. "You know, but I can't. Uh, I, uh, you know, but he, he doesn't. He does. He never forgives me for what went on in his life." And I said, "Well, that you, she'd let me know she'd send him two hundred thousand dollars." And I said, "Well, after sending him two hundred thousand dollars after thirty years, he's learned that not forgiving you pays well." <laughs> she uh, couldn't help but right. laugh. Well,
1: all right. We're, we have about a, a, actually a couple minutes. So uh, clo- uh, what's your closing thoughts for us, John Fredrickson? The lies we tell ourselves, what do you want to leave our listeners with? What's your
2: message? The message is, is if, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling depressed, if you're not feeling well, there's some lies you've swallowed where there's some lies you're telling yourself that are making you ill. All you have to do is stop telling yourself those lies and stop telling, uh, swallowing them. If someone said, uh, said that you can't do it or you're not able to or you're fat or you're ugly, you need to stop swallowing those lies and that, stop feeding those lies. And then you need to just turn around and face whatever's uncomfortable. Because if you face what's uncomfortable, then you're going to be in control of your life instead of anxiety being in control of you. A lot of times we think we need to avoid what makes us anxious, but when we do, we start living in a box. But if you turn around and face what makes you anxious, you'll be in control instead of the anxiety being in control of you.
1: All right. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was really great. Stay on the line for a minute. John Fredrickson, the book, The Lies We Tell Ourselves How to Face the Truth, Accept Yourself, and Create a Better Life. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks. It was great. All right, stay in line for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin show right here on voiceamerica.com. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need and know you can make your dreams come true. Look me up at patriciaraskin.com and on Facebook at Patricia Raskin and also Patricia Raskin Raskin resources until next time. Have a great week.